reducing music history to a pageant of masters is at bottom lazy. We stick with the known in order to avoid the hard work of the unknown. That is a quote by Alex Ross from his book, The Rediscovery of Florence Price. Florence Price is uh, one of the few black female composers that has managed to make a dent in the hard white shell of the classical uh, repertoire, or at least I should say the hard white male shell of the classical repertoire. Uh, Folks, welcome to the Blue Ribbon Podcast. I'm Michael Zarethus Cook. This is the first episode of what I'm hoping will be a a good time uh, for a long time. I'm starting this podcast as an extension of my weekly journal. If you know me, you know how much I love sharing music. Uh, Half the time it's classical music, that's the spirit behind this. And the other half of the time it's whatever else it is I'm listening to. So that's what this podcast will be about sharing some of the best tunes that I can find uh, and doing so through a a weekly vinyl selection. Uh, This is also going to be a way uh, to vent some of the problematic aspects of classical music that gets in the way of enjoying what is essentially very good music um, without all of the historical baggage. Uh, And that's what the opening quote from Alex Ross Uh, author of uh, The Rest is Noise. Uh, There's also a blog called The Rest is Noise that uh, I encourage you to follow. That's what that opening quote is all about. It's hard to talk about classical music without feeling like you're subscribing uh, to the alleged superiority of Western music. Um, But I'm going to try and do that here by focusing on what I believe matters the most in music. And that is the emotional connection, uh, the spirit of a piece, the arts and letters section of critical literature. The second aspect of that Alex Ross quote that is relevant here has to do with the laziness that is inherent uh, in relying too much on the classical repertoire as the main intake for your musical diet, if you will. There's a big wild world out there beyond classical music uh, or beyond whatever genre you subscribe to. And what I want to emphasize here is that classical music is only one of the many stops that a well-rounded playlist should be making. So along with the classical recording on vinyl that I select each week, there is also a Song of the Week segment that features a non-classical song. Usually it's a folk song uh, in in the loosest use of that word Um, or a rock song or again I try and keep it as varied as I can manage. For example the vinyl selection for this week is Chopin's Piano Concerto number one, one of my absolute favorites and the song of the week segment features a song called Nyame Jam Uh, by a band called Bombino, one of my absolute favorite bands from Western Africa. So that's the main idea of how this podcast will be organized, reflecting 
uh, the journal that I've been keeping for almost four years now. That's also how that journal is organized. Um, one of my main priorities with the weekly vinyl selections is uh, maintaining diversity in the choices of artists that I feature. Um, now, particularly with vinyl, it's hard to find um, allegedly obscure uh, classical artists on vinyl. And I say allegedly because, you know, with each one of these uh, artists that you don't hear of as often as you hear of the Mozarts and Beethovens and so on, uh, there's always a, a rather sizable following that they have on an international scale, but it's always hard to find that following in any particular city uh, enough to justify uh, regular performance by the local orchestra. And also in the world of vinyl, it's hard to, uh, to come across these artists in your local record store, uh, but it's necessary work to go out and look for them either uh, online or uh, in the record stores in the city. I've been a bit lucky in the organization of the 52 selections uh, for the next year. Um, and it's work that anyone putting together any sort of a program for any size of an, uh, an ensemble, it's work that you got to do. Uh, otherwise, the same people, the same white men end up being passed around over and over. If you're uh, not a fan of podcasts, uh, then I've got great news for you. Uh, the written version of this music journal will continue every other week, alternating with the podcast version, uh, which will be released, uh, obviously, every other week. I'm a big believer in the written journal. Either it's, you know, you're putting pens to paper or you're doing it digitally. Um, I love the written word. I love quoting what other people have, have written and said about some of the com compositions that I'll be talking about. So I, again, it's my priority to maintain that the written version is, is as much as I can. So some housekeeping before I move on to this week's recording. Uh, the first order of business is a recommendation that I hope you take me up on. Adam Neely's video on YouTube titled Music Theory is Racist is uh, an absolute must watch. Uh, as the title suggests, uh, which is it's a fairly sensational title, but he manages the, the rare uh, feat of actually backing up his sensational title. He takes you through both the history and the uh, conceptual understanding of how particularly classical music has positioned itself as the not only superior standard to every other type of music, but synonymous with music theory itself. So for example, when you hear the words music theory, we often don't make the distinction between, well, Western music theory and, and you know, Indian music theory, African music theory, and so on. We just take it as part and parcel that while well, music theory is by definition, Western classical music theory. Now, the point, the amazing point that Adam makes uh, is that, well, it would be better to just call it the 
music theory of 18th century European composers. That's a mouthful, but it also happens to be more accurate. And it puts classical music in a box that's the same size as every other uh, musical tradition. Um, and again, I feel especially lucky that I'm starting the podcast now because I just watched uh, the video the day before I'm recording this. And it just got me so heated in terms of the baggage that I was referring to earlier about classical music that it's so hard to talk about it again without feeling as if you're subscribing to a, a, a superiority complex that the entire genre and the industry uh, around it has built itself up to where, you know, all the other types of music are, are seen down here and then classical music is, is up here. And not only that, uh, if you want to, uh, if you want to prove the worth or the uh, um, thinking and genius of uh, of the other types of music, you kind of have to connect it to you know classical music theory in order to do that. You shouldn't, but that's usually what we do. And Adam really takes that tendency to task. Um, I can't recommend this video. Uh, enough. I will put it in. I will put the link to the video in a, a description box below this video. The second order of business is the other podcast that I recently started with the good people at LudwigVan.com. Uh, it's called the Remote Podcast. I will also put a, a link to it in the description section below. Um, there I will be, it'll be less me just rattling on and more uh, professionals in the industry sharing their experience of this year thus far, by which obviously I mean the COVID pandemic and how it's affected them and their how they foresee the industry recovering if uh, possible from 2020. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. I think this podcast also is going to be uh, a lot of fun just to uh, empty my mind on a weekly uh, basis. Uh, but there it's really going to be cool to just listen to uh, what other people, obviously with a tremendous amount of experience, much more than I uh, uh, in the industry, what they have to say about what's going on. Uh, that also obviously includes the social aspect of the period that we're in, uh, especially when it comes to the representation of minority artists and audience members within the performing arts. That's something that, that's, that's a conversation that I'm hoping, you know, never goes away because it's incredibly important. Um, so in, in many respects, this show will be sort of like the after party to, the, to that uh, podcast um, it, or the late show, if you will. Um, so yes, please check it out, uh, spread the word, pass it on, like, share, subscribe, smash that like button, whatever it is you're supposed to say. Plowing ahead to this week's recording, since the beginning of August, I've been listening to Nonstop Chopin, if you've been, uh, following my weekly music journal, and the timing could not have been better in terms of starting this podcast, uh, his piano concerto number one is my favorite piano concerto and was one of the first classical records on vinyl that I purchased uh, way back when. I think a huge amount of my interest now 
uh, to those first purchases, which included uh, Beethoven's Symphony Number no. Six, Sibelius's Violin Concerto, five years ago now, in August of 2015, uh, and I've been listening to it every August since. Um, in fact, I credit Sibelius's Symphony Number no. One. These were sort of my my main entryways into the genre for some reason i've been coming back to this every august i'm a creature of habit so when i found it in august of 2015 it so perfectly fit the mood that i was in that particular year hopefully hear something different in it obviously you do hear something different when you space things out by a year but you also find the same cues in terms of mood the same grooves are, are worn out and and you come to associate a particular time of year with the sounds uh, around it. And for me, this particular piano concerto is everything that late August uh, represents. There's a video below of the performance of the full concerto by Olga Sheps. Her performances of Chopin's piano sonatas number two and three were so spot on even better than, or at least I enjoyed it more than the vinyl recordings that introduced me to uh, those sonatas. And her performance below of the piano concerto number one is definitely uh, one of the best that I've seen both live and in recordings. So there's definitely a, a special feeling starting this podcast with this concerto. Um, and for this first episode, I'm going to keep it short and sweet just by sharing a couple uh, short excerpts that keeps me coming back to this piece year uh, after year. What's um, one of the beautiful things about something as expansive and as broad as a concerto or a symphony is, you know, you can find nooks and, and crannies within the work that you especially identify with, but the work is large enough that Every time you come back to it, um, you might as well be hearing it for the first time. Uh, the first clip that I want to highlight here is actually the intro to the concerto, the about first minute or so of the first movement, which is the lousiest, most lethargic stretch of music that I know in classical music. Uh, it's th this swirling fanfare that sounds every time that I hear it, like the orchestra doesn't want to be there. Obviously, that's the design. Um, I don't know if that's the intention, but that's certainly how I interpret it. It's just so heavy and so viscous in how it pours out right from the start. And what sticks out for me is... It sort of creates this runway for the pianist to make an entrance.
So yes, there you have it, start of the piano concerto, number one by Frédéric Chopin. Uh, again, it's that heavy, flowing, lethargic pour right at the start. In a way, I think that's why I, I come back to this composition in late August, uh, slash the first weeks of September, because it's sort of that time of summer when the heat starts to feel, you know, sluggish. It's kind of lost the vigor of, of midsummer. And everything, at least for me, takes an extra ounce of effort to get done, especially when you're biking um, back and forth across the city and so on. Now, one of the recurring themes in uh, a biography of Chopin by Alan Walker one of the recurring themes that I've been reading in the last month is his serious look at the two sides of Chopin's aesthetic as a composer and as, as a pianist. On one side, he's this passionate romantic, uh, flowing past the brim with incredibly lush melodies, kind of like what you just heard with the opening there. And yet, his aristocratic conservatism is also uh, audible. You know, his devotion to the nearly arithmetic sound of Bach and the intimations of classical form in Mozart, two composers that uh, Chopin absolutely adored. The point is both the romantic and this sort of uh, austere conservative aristocratic detachment. Both of these forces informed his music. In his biography of Chopin, Alan Walker writes, quote, mention of Mozart reminds us that it was his classical restraint and coolness under fire that Chopin admired. Despite the romantic passion and emotion that sometimes burns at white heat in Chopin's music, there is an aristocratic detachment that prevails over everything that he wrote, end quote. Elsewhere, uh, and related to the same topic, American music critic Harold Schoenberg, uh, no relation to uh, the composer, uh, though, interestingly enough, this Schoenberg was the first uh, person to win a Pulitzer for uh, being a critic. And he had this to say about this, what seems like a contradiction in Chopin's personality in terms of, you know, being informed again by, by two aesthetics that seem to be opposing each other. Quote, he was a snob and a social butterfly to whom moving in the best circles meant much. He was fastidious in his toilet and dressed in the height of fashion, even foppishly so. He kept a carriage and a valet, had a precise mind and precise manners, could be witty, was a fine mimic, and had a sharp, malicious tongue. He was ultra-conservative as well in his tastes. He made a good deal of money and spent it lavishly, always complaining that he did not have more. Good taste meant very much to him. It meant more to him than the romantic movement that was sweeping Europe. Delacroix was perhaps his closest friend, but he did not understand or even like the paintings of Delacroix. 
He was not particularly well-read. He was on good terms with all musicians of his day, but did not like their music. He abhorred the scores of Berlioz, considered Liszt's music empty, told his friend Stephen Heller that Schumann's carnival was not music at all, ignored the works of Mendelssohn, had no interest in Schubert, and Beethoven disturbed him. The only two composers who apparently meant anything to him were Bach and Mozart, those he adored. He was a romantic who hated romanticism, end quote. So I think a, a great example of these two sides of, of Chopin um, is actually displayed in, in the first six or so minutes of this piano concerto, uh, particularly in how uh, the piano again responds to the orchestra's introductory stretch. Um, taking up the orchestra's second subject, uh, which you'll hear in this next clip. second subject which the pianist takes up is I think at a subconscious level what I've been looking for and everything else that I've heard of Chopin's music uh, since I first heard a new recording not the one that I usually listen to uh, by pianist Edward Kelenyi uh, doesn't quite do it for me um, if you're looking for a great recording of this concerto vinyl Again, I'd, I'd refer you to the Orazio Frugoni recording, which is the one that I bought a number of years, five years ago. Um, I'm sure you can find it on Spotify. That recording is absolutely the gold standard uh, for me. I'll, I'll add a link below that will take you to at least what the recording looks like uh, in case you're trying to find it uh, on vinyl or on Spotify and so on. Uh, if you've got a favorite recording, I'd love to hear it. There's a comment section below here as well. The, it's also the, the main theme of the, of the piece. 
The closing of the first movement is this. It's a very long movement, about 23 to 24 minutes, depending. But the closing of the first movement, the contrast with the opening is especially remarkable. And it's kind of awkward in all the recordings that I've seen, both live uh, in person and on vinyl, there's never any applause. It's, it just sort of sits in silence. And obviously that's the um, way things are done at music, uh, at classical music concerts. But, you know, if there are, there are obviously certain exceptions to that, and this is definitely one of it. It, it just comes to this clean and compact finish and the drive of the pianist is so, it's, it's a downhill uh, advance that to meet it with silence is, is a bit awkward. Uh, it should be met with uh, applause every single time. So that's the next clip that I'd like to share, which is the closing stretch of the first movement.
Uh, as I said, I first heard this concerto in August, so um, it, it's I've been coming back to it every August, and it's the main theme of the third movement for me that captures so vividly the sense of ease and release that is unique to this time of year when you know it's not quite autumn and summer isn't really here anymore. Uh, in fact, there's a poem by Sylvia Plath called Frog Autumn that, that also for me vividly depicts that unique feeling that captures this mood succinctly. Uh, I'll add it to the bank of links below. The poem reads, again, it's called Frog Autumn, and it reads, Summer grows old, cold-blooded mother. The insects are scant, skinny. In these palustral homes, we only croak and wither. Mornings dissipate in semnolence. The sun brightens tardily. Among the pithless reeds, flies fail us. The fen sickens. Frost drops even the spider, clearly the genius of plenitude, houses himself elsewhere. Our folk thin, lamentably. It's that same theme that drives the, the concerto to a close in, in, in a way that's similar to the closing of the first movement. It's, again, this downhill, cadential uh, drive to an end. That's the subject of the next clip.
childhood until I uh, came to plowing uh, ahead here to the final stretch of this first episode. I believe I've saved the best for last with the song of the week segment. This week's song again is Nyame Jam by a band called Bombino. I've written about them uh, a number of times on this blog in the past uh, and I've seen them a couple times perform at Lee's Palace. Uh, they strike a chord in me that other types of music just can't get to. For the first nine years of my life, this is what music sounded like. I was born in Nigeria and, and sorry, was reared on uh, African music theory, sort of harking back to the Adam Neely uh, YouTube video from earlier. Unbeknownst, I wouldn't have called it African music theory, but that's essentially what it was. I was being trained informally uh, uh, using a particular music theory. So that's this is what music sounded like for the most part, uh, For sorry, for most of my Canada. Now, it's the type of music theory that you don't learn from a book, but you learn it with your body. Uh, African music is, is almost by definition uh, also a form of dance. So if you're an African musician, you're also almost by definition a dancer. Um, and that is also what Adam Neely was talking about in his video when he said, quote, Western music theory has developed language that attempts to show white culture superiority over non-white cultures under the guise of analysis. Close quote. This emphasis on theory that is only communicated through notation, there's a subtext to it that attempts, as again, Neely is saying here, to show white culture superiority and Western superiority over uh, other cultures that communicate and teach their notations uh, without, the, without the use of written aids struck in his video when he said that, quote, Western music theory has developed a language that attempts to show white culture superiority over non-white culture under the guise of analysis, end quote. Exactly. I would not have considered my musical education growing up, informal though it was, uh, to be related to some sort of music theory. But it is in fact music theory. It's African music theory uh, in a way that Western music theory should be just known as Western music theory instead of a blanket sense of, well, this is music theory, period. Um, again, it's really hard to engage classical music without, without feeling as if you have to turn away from other types of music. Plowing ahead here to the final stretch of this first episode, uh, and I believe I've saved to the best for last with the Song of the Week segment. Uh, this week's song is, again, Nyame Jam by a band called Bambino. Uh, I've written about them in the past uh, on this blog. Uh, a couple of times and have seen them a couple of times at Lee's Palace uh, in Toronto. They strike a chord in me that other types of music simply can't get uh, get to. A uh, bit about me, the first I spent I was born in Nigeria and was there for the first nine years of my life. So this is what music sounded like for those first nine years. I was reared on African music theory, which you know you don't learn from a book. You learn it with your body. Uh, an African musician is uh, almost by definition a good dancer. 
this is also the cord that Adam Neely that don't utilize a rigid canon or uh, a notated uh, theoretical base or rely heavily on the contributions of, of you know, mostly white men. So when I started this journal, I wanted to create a space where all types of music, especially the music that resonates with my African roots, uh, where they can share the same sacred space. One of the quotes that Adam Neely references in his video is by a Ghanaian music scholar named Kofi Agawu. It's a particularly striking quote because it shows directly how we look at the differences between Western music and African music. How we think of Western music theory as music theory and then how we look at African music and think, well, there's no way that, you know, that's based on a, th a theoretical basis. And the quote from Kofi uh, Agawa reads, quote, Imagine, if you will, a new world order in which African approaches to rhythm pedagogy predominated in the American Academy. No one would be granted a music degree who could not dance, close quote. Niamey Jam is named after the capital city of Niger. The city is called Niamey, which shares a border with Nigeria where I'm from. Hopefully when concerts return back to normal, I'm sure Bambino will... will make another stop in Toronto, please check them out. Uh, they'll most likely be playing at Lee's Palace. It's, it's a fun time every time. Thanks for listening. Like, share, subscribe. Yeah.